Chapter One of Desperate Remedies by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Events of Thirty Years. One, December and January, eighteen thirty-five to thirty-six. In the long and intricately inwrought chain of circumstance which renders worthy of record some experiences of Cytherea Gray, Edward Springrove, and others the first event directly influencing the issue was a christmas visit in the above-mentioned year eighteen thirty five ambrose gray a young architect who had just begun the practice of his profession in the midland town of hockbridge to the north of christminster went to london to spend the christmas holidays with a friend who lived in bloomsbury they had gone up to cambridge in the same year and after graduating together huntway the friend had taken orders Gray was handsome, frank, and gentle. He had a quality of thought which, exercised on homeliness, was humour, on nature, picturesqueness, on abstractions, poetry. Being, as a rule, broadcast, it was all three. Of the wickedness of the world he was too forgetful. To discover evil in a new friend is to most people only an additional experience. To him, it was ever a surprise. While in London he became acquainted with a retired officer in the Navy, named Bradley, who, with his wife and their daughter, lived in a street not far from Russell Square. Though they were in no more than comfortable circumstances, the captain's wife came of an ancient family whose genealogical tree was interlaced with some of the most illustrious and well-known in the kingdom. The young lady, their daughter, seemed to Gray by far the most beautiful and queenly being he had ever beheld. She was about nineteen or twenty, and her name was Cytherea. In truth she was not so very unlike country girls of that type of beauty, except in one respect. She was perfect in her manner and bearing, and they were not. A mere distinguishing peculiarity, by catching the eye, is often read as the pervading characteristic and she appeared to him no less than perfection throughout, transcending her rural rivals in very nature. Gray did a thing, the blissfulness of which was only eclipsed by its hazardousness. He loved her at first sight. His introductions had led him into contact with Cytherea and her parents two or three times on the first week of his arrival in London, and accident and a lover's contrivance brought them together as frequently the week following. The parents liked young Gray, and having few friends, for their equals in blood were their superiors in position, he was received on very generous terms. His passion for Cytherea grew not only strong, but ineffably exalted. She, without positively encouraging him, tacitly assented to his schemes for being near her, her father and mother seemed to have lost all confidence in nobility of birth without money to give effect to its presence, and looked upon the budding consequence of the young people's reciprocal glances with placidity, if not actual favour. Gray's whole impassioned dream terminated in a sad and unaccountable episode. After passing through three weeks of sweet experience, he had arrived at the last stage, a kind of moral Gaza, before plunging into an emotional desert. The second week in January had come round, and it was necessary for the young architect to leave town. 
throughout his acquaintanceship with the lady of his heart there had been this marked peculiarity in her love she had delighted in his presence as a sweetheart should do yet from first to last she had repressed all recognition of the true nature of the thread which drew them together blinding herself to its meaning and only natural tendency and appearing to dread his announcement of them the present seemed enough for her without cumulative hope usually even if love is in itself an end it must be regarded as a beginning to be enjoyed in spite of evasions as an obstacle and in consequence of them as a spur he would put the matter off no longer it was evening he took her into a little conservatory on the landing and there among the evergreens by the light of a few tiny lamps infinitely enhancing the freshness and beauty of the leaves he made the declaration of a love as fresh and beautiful as they my love my darling be my wife she seemed like one just awakened ah we must part now she faltered in a voice of anguish i will write to you she loosened her hand and rushed away in a wild fever gray went home and watched for the next morning who shall express his misery and wonder when a note containing these words was put into his hand good-bye good-bye for ever as recognized lovers something divides us eternally forgive me i should have told you before but your love was sweet never mention me that very day and as it seemed to put an end to a painful condition of things daughter and parents left london to pay off a promised visit to a relative in a western county no message or letter of entreaty could wring from her any explanation she begged him not to follow her and the most bewildering point was that her father and mother appeared from the tone of a letter gray received from them as vexed and sad as he at this sudden renunciation one thing was plain without admitting her reason as valid they knew what that reason was and did not intend to reveal it a week from that day ambrose gray left his friend huntway's house and saw no more of the love he mourned from time to time his friend answered any inquiry gray made by letter respecting her but very poor food to a lover is intelligence of a mistress filtered through a friend huntway could tell nothing definitely he said he believed there had been some prior flirtation between cytherea and her cousin an officer of the line two or three years before gray met her which had suddenly been terminated by the cousin's departure for india and the young ladies travelling on the continent with their parents the whole of the ensuing summer on account of delicate health eventually huntway said that circumstances had rendered gray's attachment more hopeless still cytherea's mother had unexpectedly inherited a large fortune and estates in the west of england by the rapid fall of some intervening lives this had caused their removal from the small house in bloomsbury and as it appeared a renunciation of their old friends in that quarter young gray concluded that his cytherea had forgotten him and his love but he could not forget her two from eighteen forty three to eighteen sixty one eight years later feeling lonely and depressed a man without relatives with many acquaintances but no friends 
Ambrose Gray met a young lady of a different kind, fairly endowed with money and good gifts. As to caring very deeply for another woman after the loss of Cytherea, it was an absolute impossibility with him. With all, the beautiful things of the earth become more dear as they elude pursuit, but with some natures, utter illusion is the one special event which will make a passing love permanent for ever. This second young lady and Grey were married. That he did not, first or last, love his wife as he should have done, was known to all. But few knew that his unmanageable heart could never be weaned from useless repining at the loss of its first idol. His character to some extent deteriorated, as emotional constitutions will under the long sense of disappointment at having missed their imagined destiny. And thus, though naturally of a gentle and pleasant disposition, he grew to be not so tenderly regarded by his acquaintances as it is the lot of some of those persons to be. The winning and sanguine receptivity of his early life developed by degrees a moody nervousness, and when not picturing prospects drawn from baseless hope, he was the victim of indescribable depression. The practical issue of such a condition was improvidence, originally almost an unconscious improvidence, for every debt incurred had been mentally paid off with a religious exactness from the treasures of expectation before mentioned. But as years revolved, the same course was continued, from the lack of spirit sufficient for shifting out of an old groove when it has been found to lead to disaster. In the year 1861 his wife died, leaving him a widower with two children. The elder, a son named Owen, now just turned seventeen, was taken from school and initiated as pupil to the profession of architect in his father's office. The remaining child was a daughter, and Owen's junior by a year. Her Christian name was Cytherea, and it is easy to guess why. 3. October the 12th, 1863 We pass over two years in order to reach the next cardinal event of these persons' lives. The scene is still the Greys' native town of Hockbridge, but as it appeared on a Monday afternoon in the month of October. The weather was sunny and dry, but the ancient borough was to be seen wearing one of its least attractive aspects. First, on account of the time, it was that stagnant hour of the twenty-four when the practical garishness of day, having escaped from the fresh long shadows and enlivening newness of the morning, has not yet made any perceptible advance towards acquiring those mellow and soothing tones which grace its decline. Next, it was that stage in the progress of the week, when business, which, carried on under the gables of an old country place, is not devoid of a romantic sparkle, was well-nigh extinguished. Lastly, the town was intentionally bent upon being attractive, by exhibiting to an influx of visitors the local talent for dramatic recitation, and provincial towns trying to be lively are the dullest of dull things. Little towns are like little children in this respect, that they interest most when they are enacting native peculiarities unconscious of beholders. Discovering themselves to be watched, they attempt to be entertaining by putting on an antic, and produce disagreeable caricatures which spoil them. 
The weather-stained clock-face in the low church tower standing at the intersection of the three chief streets was expressing half-past two to the town hall opposite, where the much-talked-of reading from Shakespeare was about to begin. The doors were open, and those persons who had already assembled within the building were noticing the entrance of the newcomers, silently criticising their dress, questioning the genuineness of their teeth and hair, estimating their private means. Among these later ones came an exceptional young maiden who glowed amid the dullness like a single bright red poppy in a field of brown stubble. She wore an elegant dark jacket, lavender dress, hat with grey strings and trimmings, and gloves of a colour to harmonise. She lightly walked up the side passage of the room, cast a slight glance around, and entered the seat pointed out to her. The young girl was Cytheria Grey. Her age was now about eighteen. During her entry, and at various times whilst sitting in her seat and listening to the reader on the platform, her personal appearance formed an interesting subject of study for several neighbouring eyes. Her face was exceedingly attractive, though artistically less perfect than her figure, which approached unusually near to the standard of faultlessness. But even this feature of hers yielded the palm to the gracefulness of her movement, which was fascinating and delightful to an extreme degree. Indeed, motion was her speciality, whether shown on its most extended scale of bodily progression, or minutely, as in the uplifting of her eyelids, the bending of her fingers, the pouting of her lip. The carriage of her head, motion within motion, a glide upon a glide, was as delicate as that of a magnetic needle and this flexibility and elasticity had never been taught her by rule, nor even been acquired by observation, but nullo culto had naturally developed itself with her years. In childhood a stone or stalk in the way, which had been the inevitable occasion of a fall to her playmates, had usually left her safe and upright on her feet after the narrowest escape by oscillations and whirls for the preservation of her balance at mixed christmas parties when she numbered but twelve or thirteen years and was heartily despised on that account by lads who deemed themselves men her apt lightness in the dance covered this incompleteness in her womanhood and compelled the self-same youths in spite of resolutions to seize upon her childish figure as a partner whom they could not afford to contemn and in later years when the instincts of her sex had shown her this point as the best and rarest feature in her external self, she was not found wanting an attention to the cultivation of finish in its details. Her hair rested gaily upon her shoulders in curls, and was of a shining corn-yellow in the highlights, deepening to a definite nut-brown as each curl wound round into the shade. She had eyes of a sapphire hue, though rather darker than the gem ordinarily appears. They possessed the affectionate and liquid sparkle of loyalty and good faith, as distinguishable from that harder brightness which seems to express faithfulness only to the object confronting them. But to attempt to gain a view of her, or indeed of any fascinating woman, from a measured category, is as difficult as to appreciate the effect of a landscape by exploring it at night with a lantern, or of a full chord of music by piping the notes in succession. Nevertheless, it may readily be believed from the description here ventured 
that among the many winning phases of her aspect these were particularly striking during pleasant doubt when her eyes brightened stealthily and smiled as eyes will smile as distinctly as her lips and in the space of a single instant expressed clearly the whole round of degrees of expectancy which lie over the wide expanse between yea and nay during the telling of a secret which was involuntarily accompanied by a sudden minute start and ecstatic pressure of the listener's arm side or neck as the position and degree of intimacy dictated when anxiously regarding one who possessed her affections she suddenly assumed the last-mentioned bearing in the progress of the present entertainment her glance was directed out of the window why the particulars of a young lady's presence at a very mediocre performance were prevented from dropping into the oblivion which their intrinsic insignificance would naturally have involved why they were remembered and individualized by herself and others through after years was simply that she unknowingly stood as it were upon the extreme posterior edge of a tract in her life in which the real meaning of taking thought had never been known. It was the last hour of experience she ever enjoyed with a mind entirely free from a knowledge of that labyrinth into which she stepped immediately afterwards, to continue a perplexed course among its mazes for the greater portion of twenty-nine subsequent months. The town hall in which Cytherea sat was a building of brown stone, and through one of the windows could be seen from the interior of the room the house-tops and chimneys of the adjacent street, and also the upper part of a neighbouring church spire, now in course of completion, under the superintendence of Miss Gray's father, the architect to the work. That the top of this spire should be visible from her position in the room was a fact which Cytherea's idling eyes had discovered with some interest, and she was now engaged in watching the scene that was being enacted about its airy summit. Round the conical stonework rose a cage of scaffolding against the blue sky, and upon this stood five men, four in clothes as white as the new erection close beneath their hands, the fifth in the ordinary dark suit of a gentleman. The four working men in white were three masons and a mason's labourer. The fifth man was the architect, Mr. Gray. He had been giving directions, as it seemed, and retiring as far as the narrow footway allowed, stood perfectly still. The picture thus presented to a spectator in the town hall was curious and striking. It was an illuminated miniature, framed in by the dark margin of the window, the keen-edged shadiness of which emphasised by contrast the softness of the objects enclosed. The height of the spire was about one hundred and twenty feet, and the five men engaged thereon seemed entirely removed from the sphere and experiences of ordinary human beings. They appeared little larger than pigeons, and made their tiny movements with a soft, spirit-like silentness. One idea above all others was conveyed to the mind of a person on the ground by their aspect, namely concentration of purpose, that they were indifferent to, even unconscious of, the distracted world beneath them, and all that moved upon it. They never looked off the scaffolding. Then one of them turned. It was Mr. Gray. Again he stood motionless, with attention to the operations of the others, 
he appeared to be lost in reflection, and had directed his face towards a new stone they were lifting. "'Why does he stand like that?' the young lady thought at length, up to that moment as listless and careless as one of the ancient Tarentines, who, on such an afternoon as this, watched from the theatre, the entry into their harbour, of a power that overturned the state. She moved herself uneasily. "'I wish you would come down,' she whispered, still gazing at the sky-backed picture. "'It is so dangerous to be absent-minded up there.' When she had done murmuring the words, her father indecisively laid hold of one of the scaffold-poles, as if to test its strength, then let it go and stepped back. In stepping, his foot slipped. An instant of doubling forwards and sideways, and he reeled off into the air, immediately disappearing downwards. His agonised daughter rose to her feet by a convulsive movement. Her lips parted and she gasped for breath. She could utter no sound. One by one the people about her, unconscious of what had happened, turned their heads, and inquiry and alarm became visible upon their faces at the sight of the poor child. A moment longer, and she fell to the floor. The next impression of which Cytherea had any consciousness was of being carried from a strange vehicle across the pavement to the steps of her own house by her brother and an older man. Recollection of what had passed evolved itself an instant later, and just as they entered the door, through which another and sadder burden had been carried but a few instants before, her eyes caught sight of the south-western sky, and without heeding saw white sunlight shining in shaft-like lines from a rift in a slaty cloud. Emotions will attach themselves to scenes that are simultaneous, however foreign in essence these scenes may be, as chemical waters will crystallise on twigs and wires. Even after that time any mental agony brought less vividly to Cytherea's mind the scene from the town-hall windows than sunlight streaming in shaft-like lines. 4. October the 19th When death enters a house, an element of sadness and an element of horror accompany it. Sadness from the death itself, horror from the clouds of blackness we designedly labour to introduce. The funeral had taken place. Depressed yet resolved in his demeanour, Owen Gray sat before his father's private escritoire, engaged in turning out and unfolding a heterogeneous collection of papers, forbidding and inharmonious to the eye at all times, most of all to one under the influence of a great grief. Laminae of white paper tied with twine were indiscriminately intermixed with other white papers bounded by black edges, these with blue foolscap wrapped round with crude red tape. The bulk of these letters, bills and other documents were submitted to a careful examination, by which the appended particulars were ascertained. First, that their father's income from professional sources had been very small, amounting to not more than half their expenditure, and that his own and his wife's property, upon which he had relied for the balance, had been sunk and lost in unwise loans to unscrupulous men who had traded upon their father's too open-hearted trustfulness. Second, that finding his mistake, 
he had endeavoured to regain his standing by the illusory path of speculation. The most notable instance of this was the following. He had been induced, when at Plymouth in the autumn of the previous year, to venture all his spare capital on the bottomry security of an Italian brig which had put into the harbour in distress. The profit was to be considerable, so was the risk. There turned out to be no security whatever. The circumstances of the case tendered it the most unfortunate speculation that a man like himself, ignorant of all such matters, could possibly engage in. The vessel went down, and all Mr. Gray's money with it. Third, that these failures had left him burdened with debts he knew not how to meet, so that at the time of his death even the few pounds lying to his account at the bank were his only in name. Fourth, that the loss of his wife two years earlier had awakened him to a keen sense of his blindness and of his duty by his children. He had then resolved to reinstate, by unflagging zeal in the pursuit of his profession, and by no speculation, at least a portion of the little fortune he had let go. Cytherea was frequently at her brother's elbow during these examinations. She often remarked sadly, "'Poor papa failed to fulfil his good intention for want of time, didn't he, Owen? And there was an excuse for his past, though he never would claim it. I never forget that original disheartening blow, and how that from it sprang all the ills of his life, everything connected with his gloom, and the lassitude in business we used so often to see about him.' "'I remember what he said once,' returned the brother, when I sat up late with him. He said, "'Owen, don't love too blindly. Blindly you will love, if you love at all, but a little care is still possible to a well-disciplined heart. May that heart be yours, as it was not mine,' father said. "'Cultivate the art of renunciation.' "'And I am going to,' said the rear. And once mamma said that an excellent woman was papa's ruin, because he did not know the way to give her up when he had lost her. I do wonder where she is now, Owen. We were told not to try to find out anything about her. Papa never told us her name, did he? That was by her own request, I believe. But never mind her, she was not our mother. The love affair which had been Ambrose Gray's disheartening blow was precisely of that nature which lads take little account of, but girls ponder in their hearts. 5. From October the 19th to July the 9th Thus Ambrose Gray's good intentions with regard to the reintegration of his property had scarcely taken tangible form when his sudden death put them forever out of his power. Heavy bills showing the extent of his obligations tumbled in immediately upon the heels of the funeral from quarters previously unheard and unthought of. Thus pressed, a bill was filed in Chancery to have the assets, such as they were, administered by the court. "'What will become of us now?' thought Owen continually. "'There is in us an unquenchable expectation which at the gloomiest time persists in inferring that because we are ourselves, there must be a special future in store for us, though our nature and antecedents to the remotest particular have been common to thousands. 
thus to cytherea and owen gray the question how their lives would end seemed the deepest of possible enigmas to others who knew their position equally well with themselves the question was the easiest that could be asked like those of other people similarly circumstanced then owen held a consultation with his sister to come to some decision on their future course and a month was passed in waiting for answers to letters and in the examination of schemes more or less futile sudden hopes that were rainbows to the sight proved but mists to the touch in the meantime unpleasant remarks disguise them as some well-meaning people might were floating around them every day the undoubted truth that they were the children of a dreamer who let slip away every farthing of his money and ran into debt with his neighbours that the daughter had been brought up to no profession that the son who had had made no progress in it and might come to the dogs could not from the nature of things be wrapped up in silence in order that it might not hurt their feelings and as a matter of fact it greeted their ears in some form or other wherever they went their few acquaintances passed them hurriedly ancient pot-wallopers and thriving shopkeepers in their intervals of leisure stood at their shop doors their toes hanging over the edge of the step and their obese waists hanging over their toes and in discourses with friends on the pavement formulated the course of the improvident and reduced the children's prospects to a shadow-like attenuation the sons of these men who wore breastpins of a sarcastic kind and smoked humorous pipes stared at cytherea with a stare unmitigated by any of the respect that had formerly softened it now it is a noticeable fact that we do not much mind what men think of us or what humiliating secret they discover of our means parentage or object provided that each thinks and acts thereupon in isolation it is the exchange of ideas about us that we dread most and the possession by a hundred acquaintances severally insulated of the knowledge of our skeleton closet's whereabouts is not so distressing to the nerves as a chat over it by a party of half a dozen exclusive depositories though these may be perhaps though hockbridge watched and whispered its animus would have been little more than a trifle to persons in thriving circumstances but unfortunately poverty whilst it is new and before the skin has had time to thicken makes people susceptible inversely to their opportunities for shielding themselves in owen was found in place of his father's irrepressibility a larger share of his father's pride and a squareness of idea which if coupled with a little more blindness would have amounted to positive prejudice to him humanity so far as he had thought of it at all was rather divided into distinct classes than blended from extreme to extreme hence by a sequence of ideas which might be traced if it were worth while he either detested or respected opinion and instinctively sought to escape a cold shade that mere sensitiveness would have endured he could have submitted to separation sickness exile drudgery hunger and thirst with stoical indifference but superciliousness was too incisive after living on for nine months in attempts to make an income as his father's successor in the profession 
attempts which were utterly fruitless by reason of his inexperience, Gray came to a simple and sweeping resolution. They would privately leave that part of England, drop from the sight of acquaintances, gossips, harsh critics and bitter creditors of whose misfortune he was not the cause, and escape the position which galled him by the only road their great poverty left open to them, that of his obtaining some employment in a distant place by following his profession as a humble underdraftsman. He thought over his capabilities with the sensations of a soldier grinding his sword at the opening of a campaign. What with lack of employment, owing to the decrease of his late father's practice, and the absence of direct and uncompromising pressure towards monetary results from a pupil's labour, which seems to be always the case when a professional man's pupil is also his son, Owen's progress in the art and science of architecture had been very insignificant indeed. Though anything but an idle young man, he had hardly reached the age at which industrious men, who lack an external whip to send them on in the world, are induced by their own common sense to whip on themselves. Hence his knowledge of plans, elevations, sections and specifications was not greater at the end of two years of probation than might easily have been acquired in six months by a youth of average ability, himself, for instance, amid a bustling London practice. But at any rate he could make himself handy to one of the profession, some man in a remote town, and there fulfil his indentures. A tangible inducement lay in this direction of survey. He had a slight conception of such a man, a Mr. Gradfield, who was in practice in Budmouth Regis, a seaport town and watering-place in the south of England. After some doubts, Gray ventured to write to this gentleman, asking the necessary question, shortly alluding to his father's death, and stating that his term of apprenticeship had only half expired. He would be glad to complete his articles at a very low salary for the whole remaining two years, provided payment could begin at once. The answer from Mr. Gradfield stated that he was not in want of a pupil who would serve the remainder of his time on the terms Mr. Gray mentioned. But he would just add one remark. He chanced to be in want of some young man in his office, for a short time only, probably about two months, to trace drawings and attend to other subsidiary work of the kind. If Mr. Gray did not object to occupy such an inferior position as these duties would entail, and to accept weekly wages which to one with his expectations would be considered merely nominal, the post would give him an opportunity for learning a few more details of the profession. It is a beginning, and above all an abiding place away from the shadow of the cloud which hangs over us here. I will go, said Owen. Cytheria's plan for her future, an intensely simple one, owing to the even greater narrowness of her resources, was already marked out. One advantage had accrued to her through her mother's possession of a fair share of personal property, and perhaps only one. She had been carefully educated. Upon this consideration her plan was based. She was to take up her abode in her brother's lodging at Budmouth, when she would immediately advertise for a situation as a governess, having obtained the consent of a lawyer at Old Brickham, who was winding up her father's affairs, and who knew the history of her position, to allow himself to be referred to in the matter of her past life and respectability. Early one morning, 
they departed from their native town, leaving behind them scarcely a trace of their footsteps. Then the town pitied their want of wisdom in taking such a step. Rashness! They would have made a better income in Hockbridge, where they are known. There is no doubt that they would. But what is wisdom, really? A steady handling of any means to bring about any end necessary to happiness. Yet whether one's end be the usual end, a wealthy position in life, or no, the name of wisdom is seldom applied but to the means to that usual end. End of chapter 1 Recording by Philippa